0: These chapters that we're going to do tonight, chapters 30 and 31, are the final set of instructions that Moses received while he was on the mountain. You remember they came to Mount Sinai. God had the people consecrate themselves for three days. And then the glory of the Lord came in power and glory and smoke and fire on the mountain. That is what we call a theophany, an appearance of God. And he spoke out audibly the Ten Commandments to them, and they agreed to the covenant. Then Moses went up onto the mountain and gained a lot of those social laws that we read about concerning property and things like that. Came back down, read them to the people. The people agreed to them and there was this ceremony where they sacrificed the bulls for the people. And then Moses and the elders went up onto the mountain and ate the sacrificial meal in the presence of the Lord. They came back down. Moses has been called back up for a third time now, or is that, I guess, yeah, it is a third time for Moses anyway, back up into the cloud. So he's going all the way up to that cloud, which is the same one that has led them through the wilderness, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Joshua is with him, but he has not gone all the way up. He left Aaron and her in charge. And Moses is in the cloud receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle the design of the furnishings, and the garments and ceremonies for the ordination of the priests. And tonight we're going to see the end of this section, the remaining furnishings of the tabernacle, the implements, and the spices and oils that they would use there as well, and instructions over who is to build all of this stuff. This is going to be the end of a major section in Exodus. You've seen how the narrative, the story itself, has stalled out since we arrived at Sinai because the Lord has been giving them the law that He promised. In chapter 32, the narrative part of Exodus will pick up again for a short time, and that is the story of the golden calf, the unfortunate story of the golden calf. And then we will have a few more uh, of those episodes, all really centered on that one event. And then we will, moving to the end, it will be the construction and dedication of the tabernacle, and we'll do that in in one big section. So we really only have a few more weeks left here. I hope as we've gone through this section, that is obviously not the most grabby. It's not the most Exciting, perhaps, to read. I hope at the very least you've been able to see the importance of this, if only for the sake of biblical literacy, of knowing what the Bible says. And I'm trying as I go through this, especially tonight, to draw out other places in Scripture that only make sense or that gain fuller sense by knowing what God said to Moses here. And these are things that we can skim right over, but it certainly adds a lot of texture and sometimes is definitive for the interpretation of passages later if you know what's going on. And at least for me, I think it's very interesting. The Lord saw fit to put this in here. These were laws that God's people followed to the letter for a long time. And tonight there's one, well, several very interesting sections, I think, and the one we're going to focus on probably the most is where God is going to fill a man with the Holy Spirit in order to construct and design the tabernacle. Not the kind of thing we usually think of, of being filled with the Spirit, and yet, there it is. So I'm eager to get into this, and we really can see the title tonight is Like Nowhere Else, that the, the way that God wanted the tabernacle to be designed was to be something that you couldn't see anywhere else, unique and special. So let's start in chapter 30. We'll read verses 1 through 10. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. Remember, a cubit is from elbow to fingertip, approximately 18 inches. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it, and when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. We come here to the fifth furnishing in the tabernacle. We've already seen the Ark of the Covenant, The table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the brazen altar. There are two more. This is number five, the golden altar of incense. This was also, as the others were, made of that acacia wood, which is a high quality and easily shaped wood. And it was to be gilded, meaning it was to be covered with gold. So it was not solid gold, but it was wood covered with gold. It was 18 inches by 18 inches and three feet tall. So it's not very large. Hopefully you get the picture here. It's uh, honestly probably not bigger than this podium right here. And it had the horns on the four corners like the brazen altar did. It had the rings and the poles so that it could be carried. Remember, they would have been traveling. The tabernacle was portable so that they could carry it. And it had a golden molding around it. And as I've said before, the molding is not given any specifics because this was to be interpreted, as we're going to read later, by a man named Bezalel when he made it. And this altar was to be placed directly before the veil in the holy place. It's interesting to note that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it says that the altar of incense was in the holy of holies. Uh, at first glance, it seems to me that it's intending to say that it was before the Ark of the Covenant, by that meaning on the opposite side of the altar, or of the veil of the temple, I should say. But in any case, this is is in a sense the last stop before you get into the Holy of Holies. You had the lampstand on one side, the table of showbread on the other side, and then you had the altar of incense right before the veil of the tabernacle. And along with the morning and evening sacrifices, remember we talked about those, There was a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. That was to be done every day as well as the tending of the lamps. The oil was never to go out, remember. You tend the lamps in the morning, you tend them at night. The third part of the daily routine of the priest was to offer incense on this altar. And an Incense, of course, is something fragrant that is burned in order to give off a pleasant smell. And I, I saw differing opinions. One opinion is that this would have been uh, hollow like the brazen altar was and fire kindled beneath it. Uh, the other idea is that it would have been burned on top of it. And that seems more likely because that is how incense was burned. It was burned in censers or a fire pan, as was often said. So probably just would have put, been put right on the top and then burned. And, and most incense will burn for a long time, so it would not need constant maintenance. In Luke chapter 1, verse 11, you remember that Zechariah goes into the temple because he was to burn incense that day. And that's where the angel appeared to him and said that John the Baptist was going to be born. So when it says he walked in and he saw the angel standing to the right of the altar, that's this altar right here, the golden altar of incense, not the big bronze one, which is out in the courtyard. This is exclusively for authorized incense. And we're going to get that recipe in verse 34 of this chapter. You were not supposed to burn anything else or put any kind of other offerings on it. This was exclusively for incense. And every year it was to be consecrated with blood on the horns. This was been done on the Day of Atonement, which is when the priest would also go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So you can read about that, that celebration and that ceremony in Leviticus chapter 23 if you like. So once a year. Daily it was to be burning incense, and once a year it was to be consecrated. So when you go into the holy place... When you open up the tabernacle and you go inside, it was to be full of incense. There would have been perhaps a haze that was in that room, and there would have been a a beautiful smell, which we're going to discuss in a little bit here. So this was to be, as I've said at the beginning, like nowhere else. You walked in there, and you you have been transported in a way to somewhere else. Representative, the incense is representative of prayer. And then when we know that, when we know what the altar of incense was, when we read a verse like Psalm 141, verse 2, it makes an awful lot more sense to us. It says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So you can see how his prayers that he's offering, he says, this is just like the incense that's burned in morning and evening. It's, it's connected that our prayers rise before the Lord. We see this also in Revelation chapter 8, Actually, I think there's three places in Revelation where it says the prayers of the saints are the incense of heaven. But I'll read this verse here. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Which altar? This altar, the one we're talking about now. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. These are the prayers, and and you see in context, it's every prayer that every Christian has ever offered that said, Lord, how long until you judge this earth and establish your kingdom? Because the very next verse says that that incense was thrown to the earth, and it crashed and, and made a big explosion because it was, all right, I'm ready to start answering these prayers is the symbol there. So this incense altar was representative primarily of prayer. And just as we are told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing, there was always to be incense rising up in God's holy place. And this is what has been bought for us in Christ. Right now, Moses, remember, is in the cloud. He's been brought up right to the threshold of God's throne, within the cloud, where God can hear him and he can hear God directly. And that is another t- sense of what this altar represented, that, that cloud before you went past that sapphire plain that we read about before, and then the throne of God was on the other side. And Jesus told us that if you ask anything in my name, it shall be done for you, because the one who has the right to enter into the throne of room of God and ask and receive is Jesus Christ. And that's what you have been given. So when we hear something like pray without ceasing, it can feel like a burden, supposed to always be praying, when in reality, the Lord says, I've invited you in to offer incense that will be received before me in my very throne room, so why wouldn't you take advantage of that? There's just a good lesson for us there that the Lord expects His people to be constantly offering their incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It also, there's a lot of symbolism as we've discussed for the tabernacle. It represented the, the clouds as there's kind of a creation picture of the, of the tabernacle that there's the, the first, second, and third heaven. It represented, of course, the cloud itself, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Every implement in the holy place represented one of the key encounters that people had had with the Lord, the manna, the, the pillar of fire, and the pillar of cloud It also represented Sinai itself, where they were. We've talked about this before, that there was the smoke that covered the mountain, that this incense represented that in a way that they didn't have to be at Sinai. In a sense, they carried it with them everywhere they went. And ultimately, it represents that the presence of God is with us and that He hears our prayers. So that's the golden altar of incense. Let's get on to verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gerahs. I'm sure that helps you understand that, right? Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census, from 20 years old and upward, shall give the Lord's offering the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So as to make atonement for your lives. So this is the law concerning the census. And it's hard to track exactly what the flow is of this passage. I, it, doesn't need to have one. It's in one major section of the laws of the Lord. But this is discussing what you are to do when you take a census. And the word for census there literally says, when you lift up the head. So kind of to get a head count of the people of Israel. And this section raises a few questions for us. The Lord tells them to collect a half shekel of silver, which was approximately a fifth of an ounce of silver. So approximately the weight of a quarter, but it would have been silver. As a poll tax for those who are 20 years old and up. And we see in verse 15 there, the equality before God of every soul in the nation of Israel. There would, in many cases, be uh, a scale of what had to be given for the tithes. If you had a lot, you were to give proportionately. But in, in some cases like this, when you are identifying yourself as a man of Israel, everybody was equal. So, That's remarkable and, in fact, revolutionary at the time it was written. And it's revolutionary in many places today, isn't it? What is interesting, though, is the reason God gives for this tax. He says that there be no plague among them when you number them. And then he says later, to make atonement for your lives. So it's almost saying pay the tax so that something bad doesn't happen. So the money was to be used for the service of the tabernacle, And it's easiest to kind of read that and then move on. Okay, this is how they finance the tabernacle. And that is actually what it would become. In Matthew 17, 24, remember when they, they say to Peter, does your master not pay the temple tax? And then Peter goes out fishing for Jesus and they find a coin in the mouth of the fish. That was what became, what this tax became. But it's not the reason given here. This passage seems to be a deterrent against numbering the people without God's permission, which is odd. We have a census every 10 years, and it seems like you ought to number the people. But in fact, we're going to see in 2 Samuel 24, David will number the people, and it will be a disaster for the people of Israel. I'm going to read verse 10. In fact, when when David says he wants Joab, who was his, his cousin and also the commander of his army, he wants him to number the people. Joab tells him, this is a bad idea, David. The Lord will not be pleased. And if you know anything about Joab, if he realizes that something is a bad idea, you, you are way out of bounds because <laughs> Joab was, was not a good dude. He was a hasty, violent man. And he's the one telling David, we don't need to count the people. Why should we count the people? God fights for us but they did. And in verse 10 of chapter 24, David's heart, it says, struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And God sends the prophet Gad to David and says, all right, the Lord's going to punish you. You can pick one of three options. You can have a plague for three days. You can have Famine for three months, or you can, or be driven away by your enemies for three months, or you can have famine for three years. And David picks the pestilence because he says, I I want to be in the hand of the Lord, not of people. And so it says in verse 15 of that chapter, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people 70,000 men. What is the lesson of that story? God did not want his people to weigh their options by numbers and strength, but by him, by his power and his ability. And he cared so much about that. He prohibited them from numbering the people. Because why do you number the people? Just like Jesus said, you trying to see, do I have enough forces to go to battle? And God had won every battle for David. David was the one that beat Goliath when he was just a little runt fighting the giant. Right? David should have known better. And so the Lord, in order to punish the king, removed 70,000 men of his army. The only place in the Bible where we have an authorized census from the Lord is in the book of Numbers. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. Because the Lord tells him, go out and number the people. That's why the first half or so of Numbers is just a long list of names. Because that's exactly what it was. That's the only place we read of a census positively in the Bible. The Lord does not explicitly tell them not to do that here, but we are going to see, especially in the book of Joshua, God is going to make a big deal out of the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord, not to you. And the one time Israel will only send a portion of their army, when they think they've got it won, the Lord allows them to be defeated. So how do we apply this to our lives? It's good to take stock of your situation. It's good to be wise. It's good to plan. But if doing so causes you to make a decision without the Lord then you're in trouble. For example, we make plans as a church, and when we decide we're going to do something, whether that's moving to the building or anything else, we pray, and we look at the numbers, and we plan, and we talk to the experts, and we get it all together. We do everything we ought to do. In most cases, we're, we're going to go right along with what wisdom dictates, but that is not what determines our decision-making. What determines our decision-making is, has the Lord said? Is God leading us to do something? Are we supposed to step out and take a step of faith? Are we supposed to go for this even though we maybe don't have the money? Are we supposed to go for this even though this is a little outside of our reach? We're, We're just a tiny little church, or something along those lines. We plan, and then we pray, and we let the Lord Make the decision for us. Your time would be better spent seeking the Lord's face. Because as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Like when Gideon had his army. 36,000 men, I think it was. And God reduced it to 300. So that's, that's the other story of the 300 soldiers, right? <laughs> Except they weren't, you know, hardy, battle-worn Spartans. They just had jugs and torches and shouted real loud and blew the trumpets. And God gave them the victory. That's the lesson. I could give one more application point, but I went for time's sake. I'll just say, it's very important. Everybody had to give something, even though it was small, to the maintenance of the tabernacle. It is key for every member of the church to have skin in the game. That's just one more reason to tithe. The Bible tells us to, but it's one more reason because you need to be participating. You need to care. You need to have a, a stake, in a sense, in what is going on. And I've even found that, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll have people that complain an awful lot, but, you know, they're not really... They're not really invested. You know, they're kind of halfway out the door and they're not really devoting themselves. And, and that's, that's something that the Lord cares about. So that's that, uh, the law of the census. Let's move on to verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. So this is outside. And you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. He said it twice because it's a big deal. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations." This is the sixth and final furnishing of the tabernacle, the bronze laver. I grew up calling it a laver, so that's what we're going to call it. But that just means basin or washtub, and it was made of bronze. Very little detail given for this one. He just says it needs to have a stand and it needs to have a a bowl basically for them to wash their hands and i saw some designs where it was just one and then i saw others that had kind of a a stack of two different bowls they interpreted the stand as having water as well because it was washing for hands and feet so that could very well have been what it was This is in contrast to what we see in 1 Kings 7 when Solomon builds the temple. They call it the bronze sea, S-E-A, the sea, because it was so big. It was this enormous basin of bronze and it had three carvings or or engravings of bulls underneath it. And they would come up and actually wash their whole bodies in it in addition to several hand-washing stations that he made. But this is is much simpler. The stand beneath, the basin above. Filled with water so that they could wash hands and feet in the courtyard. So when you come into the tabernacle, there's that outer court. You had the, uh, the bronze altar where you'd offer the sacrifices. Beyond that, you had the bronze laver where they would wash, the priests would wash. And then you had the entryway to the tabernacle tent itself. And this was intended for them to wash their hands and feet lest they die, he says. Before any holy work. The priests had to prepare themselves. This was a thoughtful, prayerful reconsecration. Like Jesus said in John 13, 10. Remember when Peter said, if not, not my feet only, but my hands and my head? And Jesus said, he who is clean has only the need to wash his feet. It's the same idea here. They were to wash themselves before they come. And obviously there's, there's sanitation involved here. If you're butchering animals all day long, the priesthood was a bloody job. They were sacrificing animals and dealing with blood and dealing with refuse, and they needed to wash their hands and wash their feet. And the implication there, by the way, is that the priest would have been barefoot, which is interesting to consider. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has what? Clean hands. Probably a callback to this passage here. And, of course, a pure heart. And this brings to mind for us the the necessity of baptism, that when you become a believer, you must be washed clean of your sin. And baptism is, of course, an outward picture of what the Lord does, just as this was an outward picture of the purity of the priests. Washing clean of sin before you can enter into God's holy place, to die with Christ before you may move on to the next step. And that's really what this outer courtyard represented with both the altar and the laver. It represented atonement and cleansing. And for us in Christ Jesus, we want to approach the throne and the veil is open. However, you cannot come in unless you have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and been washed, not in water, but in his blood. This hand washing, by the way, this is why the the Pharisees got so bent out of shape with Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands right. This is the verse that they look to. Now, you see, this was for the priests, but it expanded. And this is what the traditions of the law did, that it went beyond the scriptures to say, in fact, everybody should wash their hands all the time. And there was a whole ceremony that went into it. And Jesus, as you know, had no time for the traditions of men. He was pure, solid scripture. And so his disciples didn't wash their hands like everybody else did. And they accused him of being unclean. But of course, he wasn't. The labor also represented the, the sea in creation. The outer court, you have the, the bronze altar, which of course, remember, would have had the uncut stones and the earth that surrounded it. So it represented the earth. And then the, the bronze labor with the water represented the sea. And that contributes to several pictures we see of the tabernacle, the, of the creation itself. It represented the waters that were parted because it's also the tabernacle, a picture of their arrival and the exodus. So there was the... the earth and the sea. There was the water that the Lord parted, and there was the desert that they went through. and the holy place, you had the, the cloud and the fire, and you had the manna that fell, and then the throne of the Lord itself, which represented Mount Sinai. It also represented, of course, the earth and the sea beneath God's feet. In a way, going through the tabernacle was like ascending to the throne of the Lord. And most of all, it represented the salvation that we must have in Christ. So that's, that's the six pieces. You had the Ark of the Covenant, the Altar of Incense, Golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the brazen altar, and the bronze laver. And this is what made up the tabernacle. So now hopefully you've got a pretty good picture of what it looked like. And when you read passages like in Samuel or later on, when it describes them as going into the the tabernacle, of the Lord, what it would have looked like and, and even smelled like. Let's look at verse 22 now. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer." It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So this is the ingredients, the recipe, you might say, for the anointing oil that they would use, exclusive to the tabernacle. Now, I will say right off the bat, for this and for the incense, which we'll see next, we're not 100% certain what these ingredients were. Tracking down what these ancient words meant and exactly what plants they referred to can be difficult. So, it's it's hard to know. But we do know that they were fragrant and it would have made a, a beautiful smelling perfume. Myrrh, we're pretty sure about. It's a a gum or a resin that comes from certain trees. And of course, we know that from the story of Christmas, right? That they brought myrrh to Jesus. We know what cinnamon is. Fragrant cane is the most difficult to identify. Different translations have identified it with specific ingredients. But the ESV and some of the newer ones just put it exactly like it says. Fragrant cane. So this would have been a plant that grew in in a kind of cane, of course. And there would have been a certain kind that at least they would have known what it is. And cassia is also made from the bark of a certain tree. And then with olive oil. And they would mix these together. Myrrh was the primary ingredient. And this was the anointing oil that you'll see in various places throughout the Old Testament where it says that they anointed the holy things. First was to anoint the tabernacle itself and all of its implements, including the priests, which we talked about last time. When they ordained the priest, when they consecrated the tabernacle, we're going to read about it. I'm inclined to think also that this would have happened every time they moved the tabernacle. They would have assembled it and anointed everything again and gone through the consecration. So that probably would have been how they cleaned some of these things. Some of you have asked me about that. Probably when they moved it or when they had special days. But anybody who tried to create this same anointing oil for themselves... So you read it in the law and say, let's make it, and we can make our house smell like that. You would be cut off from Israel, meaning you're no longer part of the family. Anointing in the Bible, as maybe you know, represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. So they would anoint the temple and the tabernacle because they wanted the Lord to be there. It was representative of the Lord coming upon kings like David. Prophets would have been anointed. Priests would have been anointed. This is a very symbolic thing. You know, we have various ways of keeping ourselves clean and smelling nice. Back then, this was how you did it. You had this oil or these perfumes that would be poured into the hair and then worked into the hair. And then you would have smelled nice because, of course, sanitation and, and I guess, what do you call that? Body wash technology had not advanced to, <laughs> to where it is today. But when we see that picture of anointing, it's picked up in 1 John chapter 2. He says in verse 20 that we've all been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 27, he says, The anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John was trying to combat these false teachers that were coming in, and this was the the very first touches of a heresy called Gnosticism that believed that There were some that were in the know. They had had these encounters with God and they knew Jesus was one of them, but Jesus isn't the only one. You know, I'm one of them. And so you need me to teach you. And John, the apostle John comes in and says, what do you need these guys for? The Holy Spirit has anointed you. Remember Jesus said in the last supper, he said, the spirit will teach you all things. He will take whatever is mine and declare it to you. And so John tells them, don't fall for these people that want to come and teach you these crazy things. You listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit within you. And it's passages like this that lead us to the famous doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, that it's not just reserved for pastors or elders or bishops or whoever, but for every believer. There's an anointing that we have. We have God's Holy Spirit who instructs us. So get to know his voice. Start by reading his letters, right? Reading his book, getting a sense of, <laughs> I'll use a silly example. You know, uh, when President Trump was running for office, I read The Art of the Deal because I didn't know anything about him and I wanted to read it. And it cracked me up as I read that book. I'm not going to make a political point. Somebody can just calm down, all right? <laughs> as I was reading the book, it cracked me up because the book read just like he talks. And you know, he's kind of got that, you know, that rare New York salesman kind of way. No, the best one you've ever heard. Like, you can ask anybody, and they'll tell you, great fella, really one of the best I've met. That's how the book read. And it really made me laugh. I'm like, oh, he absolutely wrote this book. That's exactly how he sounds. So let's apply this now. You read the scripture in order to find out what the voice of the Spirit sounds like. And when somebody comes to you and tells you, God said to me, and you're like, that's not what his voice sounds like, Amen. that's not how he talks. That's not how Jesus speaks to me. Learn his voice, and he'll speak to you. Take the time to learn. He's there to instruct you. He's there to sanctify you and set you apart. We've talked about that a lot in the book of Romans. And, and really, to make us a holy place for the Lord. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We were saying that tonight. So, just as the tabernacle and temple had to be anointed with oil, you have to be anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you should be constantly seeking his presence and his power. Which also reminds us of how grievous a sin it is to quench the Holy Spirit. And to deny the Holy Spirit. And say, ah, the Spirit freaks me out a little bit. The Holy Spirit makes you what you are in Christ Jesus. Don't be afraid of him. He's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Verse 34, very similar section. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte and anica and galbanum. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Ah, there, I know that one. Of of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense, blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. Interesting. The oil is called holy and the incense is called most holy. I'm not really sure why that is, but it's worth pondering. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So this is the recipe for the incense. We just read about the incense altar. So now he's telling them how to make the incense that they would be burned on that altar. It also, in various places, would be burned in a censer. This is something that looks sort of like a lantern that they would swing so that the smoke would fill and the smell would fill the room. Or on a fire pan, that is, you would hold something where fire could be burned and the incense could come up from it. We'll read about that as we move on. But this is the incense they would use. And again, these spices are also difficult for us to identify. All of these are made from resin or gum, which is a sap, a way of extracting sap from trees or even from flowers. Frankincense is the most familiar to us. And I will point that out again. The gifts that the wise man brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were all implements that were associated with the tabernacle and the temple. The gold, everything was to be covered with gold, right? The myrrh, which was the primary ingredient in the anointing oil, and the frankincense, which was the primary ingredient in the incense. That's Matthew 2, verse 11. It's, it's worth thinking about that Jesus was holy. He was to be sanctified, and the Lord was setting, setting that example for us. That little phrase there, seasoned with salt. I wanted to see if I had time, and I do. So I just want to take a minute uh, to, to put this out there. Tracking down this phrase, seasoned with salt, related to the sacrifices in the Bible is a very fascinating study. I've intended to write it up and, and to present it as a, maybe as a short Bible study sometime because it really fascinates me. Because he says the, the incense will be seasoned with salt. Then in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13, he's going to say, every sacrifice must be seasoned with salt. So, Okay. Then in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, he will say that the Lord has made a covenant of salt with you. 2 Chronicles 13, 5, same thing. The Lord has made a covenant of salt with you. Colossians 4, verse 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be full of grace and seasoned with salt. I'm not entirely certain what this represents and means, but it is worth chasing down and looking into this. Salt, of course, is a preservative. It offered flavor. So there are those that have put that out there, that salt was an ingredient that you offered to the Lord. It was something that you didn't, uh, you didn't remove. Oh, well, we're not going to eat it anyway. Who cares? So that maybe is part of it. I'm not entirely certain. It's just interesting to look into. And maybe when we get to Leviticus, we'll track it down and see if we can't figure it out. But, you know, get a concordance, go on Blue Letter Bible or something and, and look up the word salt and see how many times it comes up. So anyway, Jesus said we're the salt of the earth, right? Even when he said that, he says that. Seems like he said that a lot because he used it in several different contexts to make several different points. So Jesus was talking about salt a lot. Not sure why. But every sacrifice was to have salt and the altar of incense as well. And just like the anointing oil, nobody was to recreate this incense in their house under pain of exile from Israel. The only person we see punished because of incense in the Bible is King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, who was a good godly king. But it says he went into the holy place and began to offer incense before the Lord. And God struck him with leprosy right there in the holy place for offering that unauthorized incense. Now, why make these things so exclusive? Consider that. Why make the oil and the incense, you might say, proprietary to the temple? Because God wanted His tabernacle to be a unique, full-sensory experience at the tabernacle that could not be duplicated anywhere else. That when you come to the tabernacle, you are seeing and smelling things you can only find there. It's to be holy. You know, it is strange to me that we are so anti-sensory in our religion today when the Bible is just the opposite. And I think some of this comes more from intellectual tradition than anything else. Because when you go into the tabernacle, all five senses are involved in the worship of the Lord. First of all, this is the most beautiful thing in the camp by far. You walk in there, it's covered with gold, the beautiful uh, carvings and and the tapestries that were made. Your ears would be hearing the songs that would be sung. We'll come to that later. The, The bells that were on the high priest's robe as he walked. Your hands, you'd participate in the ceremony. You yourself would put your hands on the sacrifice and bring it in. Your mouth, you would taste the sacrificial meal after it had been offered. And your nose would smell this sweet incense that you couldn't find anywhere else. That when you came to the tabernacle, it was all in. It was to be the highlight of your years as you came in to the Lord's house. That's why it says in Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Heart and flesh. Heart and flesh. We're usually real big on heart or real big on mind and we're like, no, nah, nah, flesh I'm not so into that. And listen, it is certainly possible to be carnal with your senses when you come to the Lord. But God desires the worship of your mind, absolutely. Learn the scriptures. Don't say, ah, I'm just. I'm not really an intellectual person. It doesn't matter. You can, be, you can be intellectual in this one area of your life, the things of God. Take the time to learn and understand. The Spirit will teach you, as we just said. Worship of the heart. Well, I don't really stand for emotional worship. Then the Psalms are not for you, then. Every night I flood my pillow with tears, he says. I will leap and dance for joy before the Lord. Why is David being so emotional? Because the Lord desires your heart to be engaged to Him. And also of the body. That when we come into the Lord's house, as I said before, but I'm going to just make this point again. There's nothing wrong with making the church a beautiful place. To making it nice. To making it somewhere that you enjoy being. And we we kind of can have this, this Protestant, Reformed that really is more of an American thing because we're, this, we're rough and ready and we're out in the, in the pioneers and all that kind of thing. But, you know, this, this disdain for cathedrals and for beautiful churches. And, you know, if, if that's where you're basing your faith, then, yeah, you don't need that. But man, the, the Lord, when he said, make me a house and make it amazing, make it beautiful, make it sound filled with beautiful music, make it smell nice. In fact, make it smell like nothing else you smell anywhere else. You could only smell that there. So when we come into our churches, and we don't have any of these things now or yet, I should say, but you know when we have stained glass, for example, or we have tall steeples, or when we have lights on the stage, or when we even have a little bit of haze in the room, we, we should be careful to not react culturally to those things. Well, they, they seem to be getting carried away. You know what? Dave, David said, zeal for your house has consumed me. I'm so excited when I come into your house. I'm just eat, It's eating me up. I can't, I can't stand it. I love you so much, Lord. Do not relegate one part of your life to worship. I worship God with my will. I worship God with my service or my mind or my emotions and keep the rest of it separate. And everything that you do, give God praise. And if you can't do something in praise and worship to the Lord, maybe you shouldn't do it at all. And if you have to, maybe you should get on your knees and make sure that it's an act of worship to the Lord So I just want to draw this out. When we get to the Psalms, we'll talk about this an awful lot, but it's so cheap to to make fun of modern worship or modern churches that that every generation, way back to like the 1100s has been doing this. There was a time in, in church worship history when they first started introducing harmony into the church. And there were people that said that we've introduced the Satan's music and the devil is, and the Lord only speaks with one voice. So we shouldn't sing with more than one voice. And that's what they said. There was I said you shouldn't sing at all. You should chant the music. If you're not chanting, even the Gregorian chants, which we think is the most old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy way of worshiping, right? Th- those were radical, edgy things in the day, man, because they were singing. They weren't just speaking. They were singing. And how dare you? And then multiple people would sing, and they said, no, only one person should sing because then everybody's participating like they're part of it. It's, it's very odd, the things that we get bent out of shape about. So we can be flexible about things that are not... Related to the gospel. Now let's get into chapter 31. And this chapter will go a little faster, I think. The Lord said to Moses See, I have called my name, you might want to underline this guy, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. That is the first place in the Bible we see that phrase. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Now, you may have wondered how the people were supposed to pull this off according to God's standards. Can you imagine anything more intimidating than making the Ark of the Covenant? (laughs) You want a golden lampstand. Okay, and you want it to kind of look like a water lily and you want it to have flowers and stuff and it's all one solid piece of gold. Yes. Okay. How are they going to do that? According to God's standards anyway. Well, the answer is that God appointed two men especially one of them, to be his workers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bezalel was the primary craftsman. We'll see this as we go through. He is the one that is actually going to make these implements. He'll make the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and the table and the tabernacle and all these things. Says he was the son of Uri, the grandson of Hur. This is probably the same Hur who held up Moses' arms during the battle and who is right now leading the people with Aaron. Bezalel would be most likely the overseer of the work because it says God had given to them able men who could also do this. Just as how Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, yet he had an army of helpers that came behind him and filled in the details. Aholiab was the other from the tribe of Dan. Doesn't say as much about him. Uh, He seems to have handled, as we get into chapter 38, the delicate Work So the engravings themselves and the embroidery and and that kind of thing. So Bezalel did the heavy lifting when it came to the small details and the fine-tuning of things. That was a holy abs job. And as I mentioned, verses 3 through 5 are remarkable because these are the first mention of somebody in the Bible filled with the Spirit. And the purpose for which they were filled is not what you might call spiritual. It was artistic and very blue collar in a way. I filled my construction workers with the Holy Spirit. The ones that are going to build this thing have been filled and prepared for this. It says there that they were given, the word is hakma. it's wisdom. And the ESV translates it as intelligence because we hear wisdom and we, we think morality like moral wisdom but this word was much broader in the old testament it included things like science and it included things like skill like having wisdom at your job you know you've been there for a while you maybe have not had as much training but you've just done it for so long you know what you're doing that's that is also called wisdom in the bible in order to ensure that the designs would be beautiful in line with god's vision god said i have empowered them by the holy spirit This raises, I think, some fascinating questions about the Holy Spirit related to artistic endeavor. I actually wrote a paper when I was in seminary about this, where I took this this verse, and I wrote a a paper about art and the Spirit of God, and the guy gave me a a terrible grade. Very clearly didn't read it, because he said, art has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And I was like, well, it says right there that God filled these guys with the Spirit to do artistic things. First Chronicles 25, it says that the singers were all prophesying as they sang. That there's a spiritual dimension to that. That we see in 1 Samuel especially that when the prophets were moving around, they were singing. That when Elisha wanted to be filled with the Spirit, he said, bring me a harp and have someone play. That the Lord empowers us to do things in the Spirit that we might not ne- necessarily say that's spiritual. Right? You're not teaching a Bible study or leading a small group, for example. You're not evangelizing somebody. But you know, when we create things, when we build things, we are acting in God's image. Because isn't God Himself a creator? Doesn't He make things? And didn't He send Adam out to go out and do the same? And we ought to do everything well. But more than that, every one of us as New Testament Christians has also been empowered by the same Holy Spirit with special gifts. Now, I do not have the spiritual gift of metalworking and embroidery like Bezalel did. It says in First Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We call these the charismata, or the spiritual gifts. When God saved you and anointed you, you know this, I talk about it all the time, Ephesians 2.10, you have works prepared beforehand. God's got things for you to do. And he gave you the Holy Spirit's power to do it. You have supernatural power to accomplish what God's called you to do. Bezalel, I want you to build the tabernacle. I don't think I can do that. The Holy Spirit will be with you. He will come upon you and empower you. 1 Corinthians 3 compares the church to a building a temple that we're making, and every one of us, it says, has something to contribute to the building of God's spiritual house. And it may be something new. You you get saved, and all of a sudden you find you're able to preach, and you never even thought of yourself as a public speaker, but God just comes upon you, and what you say is, is used in a mighty way. Or it could be, as this was, in support of the wisdom you've already gained. Bezalel was not just a nobody. And then all of a sudden he woke up and, oh, now I, can, now I can carve things. It had been a lifetime of preparation that the Lord was getting him ready for what he wanted him to do. And in this moment, he says, I'm going to oversee this process. It's actually probably something you can say here for the writing of Scripture. Because people will say, we can see the skill of a prophet like Isaiah and the way he wrote. So the idea that God gave him this skill is just a little silly. It's obviously him. Well no doubt he was a very skilled orator and writer as they all were but when the spirit came upon them he oversaw that process to made it came out make sure it came out just the way God wanted it. Bezalel had honed his craft over the years and he was ready in the moment to receive the instructions of the Lord. Oh y'all there are so many people that God has called to ministry especially preaching who all they want to do is preach and they don't want to put in the work that it takes to become a good preacher. I want to preach. Okay, go read these 50 books. I don't really like to read. Sorry, pal. It's kind of what we do. We do a lot of studying. We do a lot of reading. You've got to preach a bunch of terrible sermons before you get your first good one. And the Lord might use them, but I'll pull out my old messages and I'll look at those notes. I'll remember, oh, that was a good one. I'm going to get that out and take a fresh look at it. And I go, I can't use any of this. This is just awful. And I remember God used it in the moment, but man, as a, as a technique and as a skill, it has grown. Worship leaders, same thing, or or even anybody where there's work to be involved. Oh, this is for the Lord. It It shouldn't take work. Well, where is that written? It always takes work. You have to hone your craft. You want to become a better children's ministry teacher. You want to become a better greeter at the door. You want to become a better sound engineer or a better teacher or worship leader or singer. Do all things with skill so that you will anticipate the anointing of the Lord. You're preparing yourself. You're getting ready. You're doing it to the best of your ability so that when the Lord comes alongside you, you're ready to receive it. The tabernacle was God's house, but it was going to be built by men. And the same is true of God's church. God's building it, but He's using us. And He's got a role for you to play. And He's got supernatural power to help you do it. But you've got to get to work and prepare yourself for when the moment comes. Verse 12 now. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, so we're coming to the end, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, that is, set you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that's key to know, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Very interesting, that word refreshed is an idiom. It could even be translated, the Lord caught his breath. Pretty cool little phrase there. So the last piece of instruction that God will give Moses on this mountain in the cloud is to keep the Sabbaths. This would have been the Sabbath year as well, which we read about before. Above all, say this is kind of odd, we just read the finishing of the tabernacle and then he gets back to the Sabbath. Well, this is why he waited at the end. He wanted to have the last thing in his mind that they keep the Sabbath, it would to be, was to be a sign to the world that Israel was God's chosen nation. And you read about it throughout history. There are always people writing things about the Jews, how they're lazy. They always take a day off. What's wrong with them? It was a sign to the world that we belong to the Lord. It was the reminder of their covenant, he says here, that every day or every week you take the day off, you are reminded, we have a covenant and an agreement with the Lord. And that's why we do this, because we are In covenant with him and also was a sign of creation itself genesis chapter 2 verse 3 and i think that's remarkable because the days of creation are under such attack from so many corners and the lord says i want you to take a sabbath day so that everybody will remember that it was six days and on the seventh i rested violation of the sabbath day meant death and to be cut off so you would die and your family would be cut off. The first time we see this will be in Numbers chapter 15. This will be the first time they have to test this law and the man was put to death. Nehemiah would enforce the Sabbath with his fists. <laughs> because you go through the Bible and they, they never really kept the law, except for short spurts under men like David and Josiah. Until they come back from exile. And the Lord uses men like Jeshua and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to firmly plant them on the law. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, there's a different problem, which is hypocrisy and tradition and, and, and legalism. But Nehemiah, chapter 13, when he comes back, he sees them working on the Sabbath day and he, he starts beating people up. <laughs> he starts using his voice loudly, we might say. To enforce it but you know then we get to mark chapter 2 verse 27 and jesus tells us the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath he reminds us that sabbath day is a gift not a burden the opposite error so in nehemiah the problem was they weren't keeping the sabbath and the book of mark and in the other gospels the sabbath was the most important thing and all you really should do is to sit still and try not to sin until the day is over And Jesus said, that is not what this was for. It was a gift. And as I've said before, the Sabbath is one of the very few specific commandments from the Old Testament that receives a Jesus-ordained overhaul. He said in Luke 6, 5, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Hebrews talks about how we now find rest in Christ and He is the fulfillment of our Sabbath without legalism. And in the church, We celebrate on Sundays, not on Saturdays. This has been done, by the way, since the very earliest days of the church. There was a man, and his name escapes me, but there's a Roman writer who was asked by the Caesar at the time, I'm hearing about these people called Christians. What's their deal? What are they up to? And he kind of did a reconnaissance mission to find out what Christians were like. And he says, they basically, they meet on the first day of the week, and they read the scriptures, and they sing, and there's always a little bit of preaching, and then they go home. I love that because that's kind of exactly what we do, isn't it? So it goes all the way back. But that shows you from the earliest days, they were worshiping on Sunday. Why? Because it was a testimony of the resurrection. It was a celebration. And the Jewish Christians were still keeping the Sabbath day on Saturday because the Sabbath, as we have seen, was not a day of worship, but a day of rest. We're going to go throughout the Torah and we're going to see the Lord is not mandating that they go to temple and do this and that. He tells them, go home. Let your slaves go home and take the day off. Let your animals take a break. You were slaves, you know what it's like giving the day off. Take a break. Relax. And that's still a good thing for us to do. Without legalism, you know, it's, well, if you don't do it this day, it doesn't count. There's always folks, if you don't worship on Saturday, you're in sin. Usually they don't say it that way. They say, if you worship on Sunday, you're in sin. What about Wednesday is what I always say? What about our home fellowships on Tuesdays and Thursdays? You know, we have a small group on Saturday. Does that count? I mean, that, you know... It was a day of rest and God closes off his instructions from the cloud by reminding his people to honor the covenant by resting on the seventh day. And you might say that in all of the the instructions about the tabernacle and everything else, that this law could have been lost in the shuffle. And in fact, it was the Sabbath year that would cause the Lord ultimately to exile them for 70 years. God wanted to make sure they remembered verse 18. We'll close here. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. God gave Moses two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I wonder what that exchange looked like. I've seen the Ten Commandments. I've seen what it looked like when the fire hit the the rock and then Moses took it down. But it just says he gave it to them. I wonder what that was like. These would have had the Ten Commandments on them. Exodus 34, 28 makes that clear that that is what was written on them, not every law that we've seen here. How amazing is it for us to see that God has spoken to men and revealed his will to men. Most importantly, how he was to be worshipped. Knowing who God is is the most important thing you can find out. And knowing how to worship. What is the right religion? That's a big deal. Well, God sat down and told us. And there will be other rules that are going to be given in the book of Exodus, not very many, but for the most part, we have finished the first giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It will continue in the book of Leviticus, but that is most of the rules that we're going to get to. And with so much to glean from this passage, obviously these are, it's a list of of rules and and recipes and blueprints, so it's it's hard to get a a through line here. But where, where can we direct our attentions as we go this evening? Well, let's read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, You come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And the dwelling place of God on the earth is no longer in his temple, but it is among his people, the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Peter compares us to stones that are being slid into, the, into place. And on the last day, when the last Christian is saved and the judgment is over, we will all be a complete, beautiful house of the Lord. We offer spiritual sacrifices of worship and praise and evangelism and service unto the Lord. We are the priesthood of this age. We are the ones that have, have the word of the Lord to give to the world and intercede before the Lord for those that we love. We all have a part to play. God has filled each one of us with the Spirit to do our work, so we've got to do it. To do it with skill. Everything we do in the church should be done with skill. Do it well. It should be done with holiness, not flippantly. We should do it fearfully. And also Above all, with gratitude to the Lord who has delivered us, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the worse and more awful slavery to sin.